Hello and welcome to the ABC Always Be Consulting podcast presented by Thomas Ryan Real Estate. Throughout this segment, I will sit down with industry professionals and really dive into their specific aspect of a real estate transaction and beyond. The ultimate goal is to inform you, the buyer or seller, so when the time comes for you to navigate the sale of a property or the purchase of a new one, you'll be better informed and ultimately more comfortable throughout the process. If you have specific topics that you are interested in learning about, or you have specific industry professionals you'd like me to interview, please let me know. I can be reached via email at thomasryan at kw.com or via Instagram at thomasryanrealestate. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Always Be Consulting. I'm your host, Thomas Ryan with Thomas Ryan Real Estate. And today I have everybody's favorite person, the lender, Benny Rabishin with New American Funding. Uh, we're going to talk about all things mortgage, loans, lending, the process, uh, kind of what it takes to get qualified and all that fun stuff. Um, so without further ado, Benny, welcome. Thanks for uh, joining me today. Everyone's favorite lender. I, 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 I think that, but I don't know if everyone else thinks the same thing. Well, just Thank the favorite you. person in general is the lender, right? Always. I like that. I like that. Good Perfect. intro. Yeah. Thanks. Well, um, why don't you, speaking of intros, why don't you just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, where you grew up, um, you know, family life, how you got in the industry, yeah. all, all that good stuff. That's the easy stuff. Um, I, uh, I, I grew up in, in L.A., um, and have always lived on the coast. I uh, went to college in San Diego and after college ended up working for a Spanish radio and television station. Um, I majored in Spanish in college, which I mean, most people that. I, I did but, not uh, know that. This is already I, informative. I went abroad to Spain, uh, learned Spanish, came back and majored in Spanish and, and minored in business. So I graduated school knowing Spanish and didn't know what I was going to do. So I started working at a radio station, um, driving around East LA, trying to sell airtime. And that was a, that was a difficult job. I was there for a couple of years and I was contacted by a family friend who was in the mortgage business and he worked at Countrywide. And this was in 2004. And he said, you know, how's your job going? What's going on there? I go, it's, it's really tough. And he goes, well, I have a Spanish speaking loan officer that does very big business that is looking for an assistant. And so one thing led to another. I started working with her. We did some, some really big numbers in that first year. I was kind of thrown into the deep end of this business and didn't know anything. I was 24 um, and quickly learned the business. And I think in hindsight, I'm happy that I got in in those times. Granted, financing was pretty easy to get back then. But just being immersed in how busy it was made me learn this business really fast. Um, so I worked with her and a couple years had passed and I worked in an assistant role and just kind of slowly made my way up to a junior loan officer and finally took the plunge and doing it myself. Um, and um, now this is my, my 16th year um, doing it and it's been uh, it's been awesome. Um, it's, been, it's been a good run. I have, um, I'm married, I have two kids. Uh, Hank and Gus, they're nine and seven, and uh, just live a little happy life together here. So uh, everything's been going well. Good deal, good deal. Now tell me a little about a b little bit about Loan Sweet Home and New American Funding, kind of your yeah. business, and maybe some unique uh, unique offerings that that you guys offer. Yeah, um, 
so I, the the company in which I work for, you know, kind of the mothership is New American Funding. We're a, a big mortgage bank. Um, so what differs from a mortgage bank versus a big bank, like I would consider like a Wells Fargo, B of A, Chase, versus a broker is a mortgage bank is all we do are mortgages. That's it. There's no checking, savings, no upselling on any other investments that we have. All we do are mortgages. Um, so uh, I've been here now for five years. Loan Suite Home is something that I thought of a few years ago where, let's be honest, I mean, mortgage is not a very sexy topic, right? Uh, it's pretty boring. In fact, a lot of people have had some, some brutal times going through that process. And I felt a few years ago that I really want to promote the journey of home ownership. And I felt like I could talk about mortgage in a way that was a little more understanding to someone where we can talk about the process and some things that we'll talk about today. So Loan Sweet Home is more of, um, I guess, kind of like a, a marketing idea that I had. Um, it's not a, a company that does loans, but it's just, that's me. Loan Sweet Home is me. And right there, there. You go, buddy. Right yes. There. And we have merch. <laughs> and, uh, it was just something where I said, I want to put a different spin on how consumers look at mortgage and it's not bad. And it really could be a great process and the journey of buying a home should be fun. And if you have the right people around you, you know, what, what, what I do and, and how I go about this is I'm a huge proponent of education from the beginning, right? Especially I love working with first time home buyers, for example. So, you know, if I could walk them through the process of what a lender's perspective is on what they look at, and then ultimately part of that journey is, you know, creating a plan, right, for these people. And a lot of people think, a lot of people are car before the hurt, of course. They go out on the weekends, they find a house that they like, they get all excited, but they haven't gone through this process of getting their financing in place, yeah. right? So then yeah. that's scrambling. And in a market where there's high demand, you're losing out to someone that was prepared. So the, the idea of Loan Sweet Home is to start the process really early on. It could be two years before you think that you want to buy. Yeah. And if we could put a strategy in place and a plan together that they can execute, whether it's buying now or in six months or a year or whatever you want that to be, and that could be maybe you need to build more credit history, maybe you need to save more money, maybe we need to find someone to go on the loan with you as a cosigner, whatever it is, right? And, and why, why I love what I do is it's such a custom approach for each person, right? Everyone has different goals, different budgets, different timing, different jobs, money, credit, everything. So we get to put together a plan specific to that potential buyer and put that in place. And so that was the idea of Loan Sweet Home was, was education, and just talking about the journey and the journey is awesome from, you know, having no credit and getting this plan in place and building it and a year later buying your first home. And then after, what does that look like? Right. That's why I love to get pictures and videos of them at the house after. So I wanted to promote that journey. And that was the idea. Of Home. And who doesn't love a little pun or play on words? Along yeah, right. with <laughs> <laughs> An easy one. Yeah. Uh, tell me some some myths that you hear of clients um, as far as the mortgage process or getting approved kind of in the industry. What are some common myths that um, that, that are out there? 
I mean, I can, I can talk forever on this. Um, you know, my, and we can go into some of those. I would say, you know, my best advice, and, and we touched on this a little earlier, is, um, is, is just being prepared, right? And, um, you know, we could go into a, a couple little things that a lot of people don't know. Um, one of those is I'll go into a, a good one today. I actually had a client yesterday. Um, and, and this is with credit and credit's a big one. There's a lot of little things that you can do that could really impact your credit. And from a lender's perspective, if we're going to lend you hundreds of thousands of dollars to buy a house, but you haven't shown the history of being able to pay your credit cards or your car payment or your student loans on time, or maybe you just don't have any credit at all. From a lender's perspective, like, you know, uh, the, the risk on our end to lend you all that money is high, right? Because you haven't shown us that you've been able to maintain debt. So um, some things are, and yesterday was, um, this gal had a $25 medical collection that she had no idea that she had. And um, so I'm going through the credit report with her and I'm looking at her scores and I said, you know, did you know that you had a, a medical collection here? And she goes, no. And we start talking about it. It was three years old. She had no idea, apparently never got anything in the mail on it, but she had that collection on there. And um, so we're, we're talking about it. And she goes, oh, it's 25 bucks. I'm just going to call the people and I'm going to pay the collection off. So one of the biggest myths with that is, is we look at that and we see that dollar amount going, oh, that's nothing. I just want this off my credit report. And it doesn't work that way. So what happens is if you pay a collection, it's a double whammy in a negative way to your credit. And the, the first hit would be when they report you to collection. So three years ago, her, her credit was probably hit, but she didn't even know. Then three years later, I run credit and she sees the collection and she goes and pays that. It's going to report that basically she's admitting that that collection was hers. So it starts that, that initial hit all over again. And how your credit score is impacted in a negative way is they really focus on recent events. As time passes from being laid on a credit card or a mortgage or whatever it is, as time passes, your score will continue to go up as long as you make the payments on time. So if she had paid that collection, her score could have dropped 10 points, 30 points, 40 points, which could have intermittently put her in a position where we couldn't get financing for her right now. So the advice I gave her was don't pay the collection. Um, there is a, a law called the statute of limitations where after a certain period of time, the credit bureaus and these collection companies just need to drop this off your credit anyways in that seven years. So for her, she was three years into that seven years. So it's 25 bucks. It wasn't affecting what we could do for her loan. She didn't have to pay it off. So I advise her just to keep the collection there, don't pay it, and we'll get through this whole process. And after a certain amount of years, it's just going to drop off. So that's one of the bigger ones is, is um, paying collections. I'm not saying never pay the collection. That's not the advice there. But if you're in the mindset of buying, have your loan officer review your credit and they'll be able to advise on whether paying that or not paying that would be something. That's a good point. I think with, with regards to credit, there's a number of different myths and strategies there, which seem yeah. counterintuitive, but are actually yeah. positive. So that definitely makes sense. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the other ones that is, you know, for someone that, and these are like a couple of little tricks that I have. So someone that um, maybe doesn't have a big credit history, right? Never really opened any credit cards. You paid cash for everything. 
But then we go back to now you're applying for hundreds of thousands of dollars and we want to see if you had credit. So um, a couple ways of getting quick credit would be is to add, have a family member who's had a credit card for a considerable amount of time. Obviously someone that's made their payment on time and a good history on a card is they can add you as an authorized user to that card. And what happens is, is all those years of history that they've been making those payments on time now goes on your history and not from the data you're added all the way back to where it was. I had a client last month who his parents added him to a credit card. He must've been 16 years old and it was really smart and they didn't give him a card. He wasn't using it, but he was getting all the credit of them making all those payments through his teens and through his twenties. So now when he was going to buy a house in his late twenties, he had credit history. And that's because his parents had set him up adding, adding him as an authorized user when he was in his teens. There you go. So that's a real quick loophole to build credit is to be added as an authorized user to like a family member's credit card. Got it. What does it take to get qualified for a loan or for a mortgage? Kind of what are some of the initial steps there? Um, you know, uh, I, I touched on this before, how it's such a custom approach. It really depends on your situation, right? But these days in general, we're asking for pretty much everything under the sun, right? So we want to see, you know, um, obviously what your, what your income structure looks like. How are you paid? Um, how do you file your taxes? Um, and that's a, that's a pretty, um, that's a big one for those that are self-employed, right? Um, and forget about getting a loan. We try to minimize what our tax implications are, basically what we're paying Uncle Sam, right? We want to minimize that the best that we can. What most people do is they tack on expenses and there's different strategy of doing that. From a lender's perspective, we like to see income. So if your tax returns are showing um, that you bring in X amount of money in, in gross revenue for the year, but you write everything off and it looks like you make no money, that's, that's not good trying to get a mortgage. So um, to get qualified, those are the types of things that we look for. We're looking at your bank statements. We're looking at, um, you know, what kind of um, incoming and outgoing are going into your bank accounts. Um, obviously, credit is a very big one. Um, so that's kind of generally speaking what we ask for up front. And then from there, it might open up some other things. That we need to for. Got it. What type of loans are there out there uh, currently or historically or in general, what can the types of loans can, can buyers expect? Yeah. Um, I think one of the, the biggest um, back to misconceptions, and this is a good one that I get a lot, you know, when we talk to our parents, right, most likely, especially like a firm millennial buyer, someone yeah. that hasn't bought, our parents are saying that they've been in their home for 40 years. They probably don't have a mortgage on it anymore. They're saying, make sure you have 20% down. I think that's one of the bigger misconceptions for someone younger going into this. And I think they get, they're defeated, right? Um, to, to hear that, um, especially if you live in an area that a price point is pretty high, to come up with 20% down is tough, right? Especially if you have student loans and other, you know, um, things that you're paying for, um, to save 20% down is very difficult. And that is just not the case anymore. And kind of back to your question, what types of loans are out there? There are so many different loan products out there. For example, I mean, there are there is stuff for um, you know um, uh, firemen, teachers, 
um, police officers. Um, there are a lot of programs for those that are first time home buyers that allow you to get into a home with a very little down payment. Um, in some cases, there are grants available that help you cover the down payment and help you cover some of the closing costs. So, you know, once we um, get introduced to a potential buyer and start going through that process and finding out what they're looking for, what their goals are, we can then better find a program that's suited to that individual, right? So there, there is almost anything under the sun. For example, a loan that, that I love is, um, I, I love helping our vets, right? Um, VA offers some, some amazing loan products um, you can be active duty. You don't have to be retired or retired vet. Um, you can buy a house with literally zero down payment. Um, interest rates are some of the best interest rates that you ever find out there. Um, there's no mortgage insurance, which we'll get into that a little later. Um, so it, it goes to show you that and, and why this is so custom is once we, once we do that analysis, there, there really are so many programs out there to help every type of person, whether it's low income, or someone buying their 10th investment property or something out there for them. Makes sense. I wanted to go back to that VA um, yeah. loan situation that you talked about. I had a unique experience earlier this year, which I, I don't know if you remember we talked about, but um, basically the, um, the max loan amount in San Bernardino County fell below a threshold of kind of where this particular property was selling at just below it. So instead of coming with three and a half percent down to meet the threshold for that purchase price, it would have been like about four and a half, five percent. If you don't have that, then you don't have that. However, uh, and correct me if I'm not, if I'm not right, but um, at the beginning of this year, I believe it was, or the end of last year, they went away with the, the max loan amount for the VA loans. So we were able to close this, this condo, which was FHA VA approved, yeah. So otherwise it could have gotten an FHA loan, but just the, the loan amount didn't allow for it. But VA was able to slip in there and no problem was 0% down. It's, so that, that was pretty cool. That was uh, you, you hit it. Yeah, that was it. So 2020, um, well, let, let me back up a little bit and to address what the issue was prior to that, there are some loan programs that depending on the County that you're in have a max loan amount that they'll allow you to go to. Um, and, and that just varies depending on the county. Um, and, and VA had a, a similar threshold. So the challenge with that is if you're buying in an area with a higher price point and for VA and you wanted to take advantage of, of doing zero down, but the loan limit was max and you were trying to get a price above that, it made it difficult. You couldn't do zero down payment. So the latest change with VA specifically is they lifted those loan limits. So there is no max anymore i mean you could buy i had a client when did he uh, do that i think it was february um, he bought a million and a half property VA with no down yeah so um awesome awesome way to get in and it really um, um took that restriction off which impacted a lot of veterans to be able to buy in areas that they wanted because they didn't have the down payment they just couldn't buy so um, if you are a vet or active duty, um, that's something you definitely need to look into, allow you to get into any neighborhood. And with that one as well, um, I remember the uh, a misconception that I had about VAs were that the appraisals were just like, it was like 
almost worse than a home inspection. Like they were going through with a fine tooth comb. Well, I actually talked to their appraiser and he said, actually, some of their restrictions were were less restrictive than some Mm -hmm. of the conventional or FHA products and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. So he's, he said it was um, sometimes easier to get those appraisals through. So I was just blown away by how, how easy that process was and how beneficial it was. Yeah. You got it through. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, like you touched on, you know, your, um, you know, your millennial parents, uh, boomers, uh, would say, come up, come in with 20% down, you know, just because that's the product that was available. Obviously there's changes for that. Similar to that, you know, when you're looking at how much you can afford, obviously the lender is going to let you know, okay, this is how much we're going to maximum give you based upon your income credit, all that good stuff. But, you know, some people think, okay, I should, I should spend X amount percentage of my, my take-home income, whether it's 20, 30, 40, whatever it may be. Do you have an indication on kind of what, what, the, what the recommendation is or sure. is on that? Obviously, it's, it's dependent upon each particular scenario because people's yeah. incomes go up at different levels and, you know, risks yeah. and stuff like that. But it's yeah. a general rule of thumb there. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a great question. I, I get asked that a lot. Hate to tell you there isn't like a straightforward percentage that I recommend, and you just touched on it on the end there. It's because everyone's situation is so different, right? Um, especially someone who has like fluctuating income, right? It's hard to um, kind of pin whatever that is. But let, let me give you some um, lender's perspective on what we look at for stuff like that. So we tip typically, right? And there's a lot of different loan programs. Generally speaking, whatever your monthly gross income is, so let's say you make $8,000 a month, whatever your monthly gross is, as a lender, we allow you to, the total debt to not exceed 50 or 49, 50% of that. So if you make $8,000 a month, we don't want your total debt to exceed $4,000 a month, right? So that would be, that would encumber whatever your new mortgage payment is, um, property taxes, homeowners insurance, if you're buying a condo or in an area where there's, um, you know, different amenities where you have to pay um, monthly um, association dues, homeowner association dues, um, and then also whatever's on your credit report. So car payments, student loans, credit cards, things of that nature, all of that debt needs to be $4,000 or less. The thing, and, and it's funny how strict financing has become over the years, but one component that I don't, I'm not going to complain about, but that is true on how we underwrite, is if you're making $8,000 a month, that's not what your take home is, right? So you're making $8,000, you're probably bringing home, depending on how your taxes are, you know, $5,500 a month, probably, let's say, right after right. everything's said and done, 401k contribution and federal tax and social security and all those expenses. Once I take out, you're bringing home 5,500, but from a lender's perspective, we're qualifying you on your gross on 8,000 before. So this is a conversation I have with my client is I'll, I'll come up with a scenario. You know, the goal is we try to find the perfect recipe that fits with their budget is. So when they get that mortgage payment every month, it's no problem. And I'll tell them, I said, we're qualifying you on your gross income. So it's important to get your feedback because you know what your take home is. You know what other expenses you have that I don't know about, just living expenses to eat and gas and all those types of things, is I need to get your feedback on what that threshold is. So 
kind of a long-winded answer, but it, it really depends on the comfortability of the client. And the, the thing that I push more than anything is, you know, I'll get a call and they'll say, Benny, what is the max that I qualify for? And I'll say, well, I think the mindset should be, let's find what your comfort zone is. Yeah. I'll then tell you what price point that is. And ultimately what that does is it helps you as their agent um, and, and them as they're looking online, their search more targeted because we've found what that price point needs to be in order for that payment to work for them. So, you know, there is no real percentage of what that is, but um, in this process and, and with the thorough job done, um, you'll, you'll find that and then you'll know like that's going to be no problem. Got it. Um, so I need the dumbed down description, short and quick. What's the difference between interest rate and APR? Oh man. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, APR is your annual percentage rate. APR is essentially all of the interest and costs of your loan amortized over whatever the term of the loan is. So if you're doing a 30 year fix, it's amortized over 30 years. Your interest rate is what your payment is based on, right? So that if you're doing research out there and, and I get calls and, and you know, random calls, you know, what's your APR? You know, it's just, it's just because lack of knowledge of what they're asking for. Right. Cause you saw it on a, a rocket mortgage uh, yeah. commercial and, loan. Lenders are required to disclose APR. And I'm not saying APR isn't important, but your payment is based on your interest rate, not the APR. So in most cases, if you're looking at advertisements, you're going to see interest rate of 3% and APR of 3.25%. And in, in, in most cases, or in all cases, APR is going to be always higher than your interest rate because the calculation of how they're coming up with that is factoring all the interest and costs and everything associated with the loan over 30 years where the interest rate is just based on whatever markets rate are that day. So that's kind of the dumbed down version of that. But uh, my advice to you is um, take a look at APR, but interest rate and payment is what you should be focusing on. I think that's the main takeaway to, to that led us, right? The question directed us to that is kind of what, what, what do I need to worry about really? Yeah. Uh, tell me a little bit about the appraisal process. Um, who orders it? When? Uh, why is it important? Um, yeah. Um, so an appraisal is a third party. So whoever lender that you're working with, it's not, they're not sending out some guy from their bank or broker to go out and do the appraisal. They're using a third party company. It's called an appraisal management company. So um, we have a company that, are, that, that we work with. Um, when you buy a house, you agree to a certain price, right? The seller agrees, you guys go into contract, you're in escrow. And let's say it's, you know, 350000 is the price. Meanwhile, obviously your agent has advised you on kind of what price to end up at because ultimately once you go into contract to buy the house or in contract when the loan starts, one of the requirements generally speaking from to get a loan is we have to do an appraisal and the reason for that is is we want to justify what that house is truly worth not what you agree to pay for it but what that house is, is truly worth and and that's how we mitigate the risk of the transaction that's just one component of that so um, a third party goes out so it's not your real estate agent has nothing to do with the seller or their agent has something to do with us because we're looking at it but 
Um, we're initiating the order, but it's done by a third party. So they don't care if this thing comes in at what you agree to pay or whatever. They're just coming in with what are what has sold in that area that is comparable to the home that you're buying. And uh, I, eventually they're going to come up with a value of that home. So we as the lender need that. But it's also a great tool for you as a buyer because when you buy a house, you also want to do due, due diligence on it, right? And um, one of the two major things in going into escrow is you want to have a home inspection done, which means, um, and it's not the appraisal, this is completely separate. Someone will go to the property, they will look through every nook and cranny of that house, and they'll give you a detailed report of the condition of that home. And that's something that you do typically within like the first week. The appraisal is also ordered usually within the first week. Um, so that's justifying what the value of the home is, and then you're comparing that, you know, looking at the home inspection, and then you know, as you're doing due diligence in the contract period, you can deal if you want to move forward, or if there was something wrong with the inspection or the appraisal, you'd have an opportunity to back out of that transaction. And if the appraisal comes in lower than the contract or purchase price, then what? So um, uh, we base the mortgage that you get based on the appraised value, not the sales price. So you're buying a house for 350000 um, all is great. We're in contract. We do the appraisal. It comes in at three hundred and forty thousand. Comes in ten thousand dollars less. There's really three options that happens as at that time from you as the buyer. Uh, the first option is your agent will typically um, take that third-party report, so we have factual data on what this house is worth and why. They'll take it to the agent representing the seller, the listing agent, and present that report and say, listen, I know we agreed to pay 350 for the house. However, we now have a report from a third party that says it's worth 340. Are you willing to renegotiate the price down to what the appraisal is? That would be your first option. Uh, second option is um, the seller says, nope, this is our number. You agreed to pay for it. Um, I don't agree with the appraiser, whatever the reason may be. Um, uh, we have someone else that wants to buy the house for 350000 So go ahead and, you know, we can cancel this contract and we'll take the other buyer. Um, or if you want to continue, um, you just need to accept it as is. So as a buyer, what happens is we base our loan on the appraised value, right? So if you're doing 5% down, we would do 5% down based on that 340 but then you need to come in with the difference of what it appraised for versus what you agreed to pay. So you do your 5% down plus the $10,000 difference between 340 and 350. So that is, that's the second option. The third option is if they're not willing to renegotiate, you're not willing to come in with the difference, um, you can choose to walk away from the transaction. Perfect. And yeah, from my perspective, that's all going to be indicative uh, largely on kind of where the market's at. Like currently we're recording this in October, 2020. Uh, yeah. It's crazy, at least in California, um, mm -hmm. Southern California, it's crazy seller's market. So, you know, sellers are receiving multiple offers, oftentimes over the list price. And mm -hmm. oftentimes we're removing appraisal contingencies, um, mm -hmm. which we can you know chat about another time, but yeah. basically the seller's in, in control. And if it doesn't appraise, then, you know, they may be every willing to, bring in that next buyer, maybe get mm -hmm. another appraisal from that buyer and get that price that they, uh, you know, wanted that 350 price point. Yeah. You know, I think it's, um, it's all in the coaching from your agents and your lender, right? Is, um, you know, Mr. Smith, you're going into this home that has 10 offers on it. They're asking 350 for it. 
And what happens when there's so many, so much interest on a property is now everyone's starting to one up each other and that price starts to tick higher and higher, which then makes that appraisal a lot harder to come in at the value. So you're almost paying a premium for the house just to lock it down. And, and actually in some cases, and you can tell me if you agree differently, but in some cases it can make sense to do that. If you really like the house and your vision of staying in that home is for a long period of time, you know, and this is a whole nother conversation on markets, but you know, what has real estate done over all these years, right? It, it, it flat, it goes up, it maybe goes down a little bit, but it always trends up over the years, right? So if your vision is to stay in that house for a long time and you're paying 5,000 more than what really it's worth, does that really matter in the, in the long scheme of things? Yeah, yeah. Even in the short term, that the house three doors down that that goes on the market after that house that you're under contract on closes, they're going to probably list it for higher than what you just paid. So you may right. have overpaid, you may have overpaid for one month and then quickly right. the next, the next home down the street goes on for the same price or, or more. And then, and then right. instant equity right again, yeah, you know, yeah. so depending upon the market, of course, that's all. Yeah, so, very true. Yeah. Uh, tell me a little about about closing costs. Um, kind of what what can be expected uh, yeah. as far as closing costs from your from your perspective. Yeah, um, I'm gonna kind of give you like a general answer here because that also could vary just depending on the transaction. But I would say typically, you know, one to two percent, roughly, of whatever the sales price is, is a good number to have in your head. Obviously, you know, going into this and doing your own research, I would say, you know, and I always pad at the beginning and, and then can come to you later on and say it was actually less, but you know, I would say about like one and a half percent, somewhere in that range is a, is a good rule of thumb. Um, and that's based on the sales price. Got it. Um, um, one to 2%. Got it. Yeah. Conservative uh, amount. Uh, yeah. I'm saying same perspective, I like to give a conservative amount and then Ideally, it comes in a little lower, and that's always a good yeah. sign. Yeah. yeah. What is a rate lock? Um, what happens when, okay, so a rate lock is you're securing the interest rate that you like, right? Um, you, as a buyer, you are not in a position to secure a rate. And, and what, what that does to you as a buyer is it protects you from any market movement that could happen you know for example now in 2020 we've seen probably arguably one of the most volatile markets we've ever seen we also have seen some of the lowest interest rates we've ever seen in history i mean they are the lowest that we've ever seen so as a buyer once you go into contract you're then in a position where you can lock an interest rate in and what that does is let's say you go into contract and um, it's a 30-day contract before you get your keys. So you, you go in day one, um, I present the rates to you, whatever that is. Um, you lock that rate in at 3%. Um, and let's say a week into escrow, um, the stock market starts having some big gains, which usually means interest rates go up. Um, and that rate of 3% is now 3.25% you know, a week later. Being that you had locked that rate in or secured that interest rate, you're protected. So you're not having to take any of those losses from the rates going up because you're secure. Conversely, if the rates go down while you're locked, when you agree to lock a rate, you're locking that rate for better or for worse. So the market also 
could go down. And I, I get these calls all the time. They go, Benny, the market went down a little bit. Why can't we get that lower rate? I'm like, well, I'm also not calling you when the rate goes higher and saying, oh, sorry, Jim, you know, the rate's now three and a half and we're going to do that too. So um, locking a rate is, um, it depends on the market, depends on um, a lot of the economic factors that are happening. Me personally, um, I'm very conservative when it comes to that. I don't like to gamble on what the market's doing, especially right now, because there's so much uncertainty that um, what I preach is payment. And again, I know I keep saying that, but it's the most important thing is if that payment is comfortable for you, don't wait for the rate to hopefully go down during this process because it easily can go up. So um, I'm a big fan of locking that interest rate as soon as you can and not gambling with the market. Got it. What is PMI? I know we touched on it a little bit when we were talking about FHA and VA loans, yeah. but what is PMI? Yeah, PMI is a big one. It's, it's private mortgage insurance. Um, mortgage insurance is typically, it, it's an added fee or payment every month. So you have your mortgage payment, you have property taxes, you have homeowners insurance, and then you have mortgage insurance, which is another component of the payment. Um, the reason why there would be PMI or mortgage insurance on a loan is, again, generally speaking, if you do less than 20% down payment, how the lender will mitigate the risk because the lower the down payment, right, the more you're leveraging that home, the higher the risk to a lender in those cases, right, because you don't have a lot of skin in the game. So how they mitigate that is they will add mortgage insurance to the payment every month. And what that does is it protects the lender, us, in case you were to ever stop making your mortgage payments for some reason, and let's say the bank takes your house over, which God forbid that never happens, but if it does, the mortgage insurance that was in place that we were requiring you to pay every month will protect us, so we don't have to take that debt back. The mortgage insurance company will do that. So mortgage insurance is an, an added um, part of your payment um, that protects the lender for someone that's doing less than 20% down. There you go, perfect. Um, Right now, as you as you indicated, interest rates are really, really low. They've been that way for quite some time this year. Um, I mean, quite some time in the past few years, but um, they're continuing to drop. Uh, it's been really hot for refinances. Kind of talk just a little bit, touch base on that. Um, mm -hmm. When's the right time to refinance? How, you know, how yeah. do you go about it? Um, yeah. PMI kind of factors in there potentially to yeah. get out of that. So yeah, um, there are uh, a lot of different reasons to refinance, which is basically you're paying off your mortgage for some different term, right? Um, you know what's what happens typically in a environment where rates are dropping, like we've seen. Um, most people are refinancing to just get a lower interest rate to lower their payment. They're looking for monthly savings. Um, another reason why someone would refinance would be maybe they're sitting on all this equity to their home and they want to access that for various reasons. It could be, um, you know, and now going through a pandemic and quarantine, we're in our houses longer and we're looking at things going, gosh, like, I don't like my house. Or I, I need to build a pool. Yeah, <laughs> I've yeah, seen a lot of that actually. I've seen So, you know, you can, another um, way to refinance is you can pull some of that equity that you've earned over the years out of your house to put a cash out and finance, um, or you can use that money to um, do those home remodels that you were hoping for. Um, a lot of people right now are pulling equity out of their house because the interest rates are so low 
and they're using that equity to pay off their debt. You know, think about when you pay on a credit card. Um, most people don't even know, but you're probably paying 20% plus on most of your credit cards. That's absurd. And if you're not, you know, actively paying that down, your and your credit card statement shows you that. You know, if you make the minimum payment, it's going to take you know 35 years to pay your credit report off or your credit card off. Yeah. So people now are are leveraging their home, which is extremely smart. It's called consolidating your debt, and you're pulling that money out of your house at a you know very low interest rate. That's probably less than a third of what your credit card is, and um, using that to pay all their debt off. Um, so refinances is a great tool for something like that. Um, lastly, I'm also doing a lot right now, um, people pulling equity out of their home, using that equity at that low interest rate to then buy an investment property, which are also low rates right now, which I, I love that play right now. Um, you can get, you can, you know, typically to buy an investment home. So something that you're going to rent out to someone, um, interest rates usually about half a percent higher than what it would be if you were living there, but the rates are still, you know, for now very low where you can buy an investment property with that equity, start getting some passive income in, right? That's the long-term retirement play right there. So yeah. investment properties, um, the renter is paying your house off for you and eventually you have those rents coming in when you retire and don't have to work. So um, a lot, a lot of great tools with refinancing your home. Got it. Well, as I mentioned, here we are in October, 2020. Um, I want to give some insight, just, you know, if you have anything uh, a little more current uh, to touch on, um, just for, for those people watching this or listening to this, you know, currently um, yeah. with everything going on, leading the election cycle, mid pandemic, um, anything to, that's, that's, you know, speaking to you in your industry right now? Yeah, what, what, a, what a year. Um, you know, I look at, I, I look at, you know, obviously I'm a, maybe I'm a little biased, but I, I think real estate is a great investment, right? Um, you know, one of the things that I'm getting now is, you know, and, and currently in this moment, we're at like, you might know, you'll know the stats better than I will, Thomas, but, you know, we're at very low inventory right now, I'm extremely low. Um, and, and then we're, you know, it's kind of simple economics, right? Really low inventory, interest rates now are, at historical lows. So that has brought in a lot of buyers. So we have a huge buyer pool, which is not a lot of option to choose from. And so I get this all the time. What do we do? Do we wait? Um, you know, I just can't see this, you know, happening forever. You know, the market's going to take a dump and I think, you know, you know, the homes are going to crash like they did in 2008. And, you know, this is, this is just my opinion. Um, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or a month from now. Um, I, I try to educate myself the best that I can with economists and people that forecast this who have been pretty successful over the years. But, you know, I would say the best time to buy is when it makes sense for you. And if, if you're, you feel comfortable in your job and you're in a position to buy and you happen to find something at a price point that works with the payment that we found for you that ended up being your comfort zone, then you buy. Um, I think if, if you're trying to wait for the huge recession to happen where prices drop 20%, I just don't see that happening, is my opinion. And the reason for that is what led to that 12 years ago was a lot of the lending that was available, right? People were getting loans that didn't qualify for their house. And it was so easy. 
Um, you didn't really have to show much documentation. That has changed. So from 2009, 10 to now, people have had to truly qualify for their home, right? Full documentation. Yeah. You look at everything, right? So now people are sitting on this run that we've had for years and years with a lot of equity in their home. We're not going to see the foreclosure and short sale market that we saw 12 years ago where the bank just takes your home because God forbid, if you lose your job and you can't make your payment anymore, you call Thomas and he lists your house and you sell it. Right. So, um, and, and you're sitting on all that equity and then you get all that equity and you go rent. So I would say if you're waiting for doomsday to happen, you might be waiting for some period of time. And, you know, so my opinion is, let's say the market- Unless it's literally doomsday, which isn't completely out of the question, but, but, but we can't, we can't base our, our decisions on that. You can't, you know, it's, um, you know, so I think you, 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 you get in when you can, obviously owning is, has so much more upside than renting. You just do it when the time is right. You know, obviously it really helps with how low rates are right now. I mean, in a lot of comparisons we've done, there's like a rent versus buy. I mean, you can almost buy something and your payment payment very close to what you're paying in rent. So, yeah. so I think I think now is a, is an excellent time. Um, I think the best time to buy a house is during the holidays. Um, there you go. Because you know, people get out of that mindset. Um you know, speaking of current times, we have a very big election coming up and there's just a lot at stake right now that I think people would be sleeping probably a little bit after that through New Year's. And uh, I think that would be a very great time to buy a house and find something. Hot tip. Yeah. Um, thanks so much for doing this. I appreciate yeah. you coming on. Where can people get a hold of you? Where's the best to get a hold of you? Find out more information. Nice. Well, um, um, my, I have my website. It's um, loansweethome.me. Um, and you can go there and I have, um, I have some stories of some of my past clients, some of their journeys that I talked about early on, which I love, um, it just has some, some good educational, um, information on there. And then ultimately, um, you know, getting on a phone call or, or email and, uh, we'll, we'll get a plan in place. Um, I think that'd be the best way to get home. Perfect. Awesome. Thanks again. Appreciate Thanks all of you. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for uh, joining us, either viewing or listening in on another episode of Always Be Consulting. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and have a good day. Bye.